something that funders can be very cautious about is expressing enthusiasm or interest uh, because that can send the wrong signal and uh, people can walk away from the meeting thinking they heard a lot of interest and enthusiasm when it might have been just thinking out loud. Hey guys, I'm Carlos Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I started IG in 2011, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, corporates, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand one another. And so we bring you What Donors Want, a fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into Major Gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, and I work with Carlos at IG. I'm also the producer of the show, and I'm very excited about today's episode. We spoke with the Rockefeller Foundation, a name that really needs no introduction. Founded in 1913 by the Rockefeller family in New York, the foundation has assets of over four billion US dollars and funds internationally with a mission to promote the well-being of humanity throughout the world, focusing on health, food, energy, and jobs. Their work is in inspired by applying evidence-based knowledge to nurture and scale innovations leading to real impact on people's lives. I'm joined here now by my colleague Emily, who's going to tell us a little more about today's guest. Thanks for having me back on. I've been waiting anxiously in the wings since the Comic Relief episode for my next chance to be in the limelight. (laughs) Um, So as Rachel said, we chatted with the Rockefeller Foundation, specifically their Vice President of Innovation, Zia Khan. In his role, Zia oversees the foundation's approach to developing solutions that can have a transformative impact on people's lives, with a focus on innovative finance, data and technology, and science. He has served on the World Economic Forum Advisory Council for Social Innovation and the U.S. National Advisory Board for Impact Investing. On to the podcast. Let's do it. Zio, we're so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Great, Rachel. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So as usual, we're going to begin the podcast episode with sort of a cheeky speed round of get to know you questions. And All really, right. the, the philosophy behind this is to start it off on a fun note, but also to promote the idea that donors are people. And you know, even when you work at a big institution like Rockefeller, you also are able to relate to fundraisers on a human level. So we've got 10 questions for you, and we're going to you know, spitfire them at you. So say the first thing that comes to your mind, there's no wrong answer or anything like that. Um, And then we can go from there. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. All right. Okay. Question number one, what was the last show or movie that you watched? Uh, It was the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I just watched an episode on Netflix. We are both obsessed with that show. (laughs) It's, I love it because it's funny and it's also set in New York historically. And I just love New York city as a place to learn about. Oh, that's awesome. That's such a good one. Um, and what's the favorite country that you've ever been to? I have to say Italy. I know that's not an original answer, but just the combo of design and style and food. And we yeah. have a conference center there. Uh, so really, it is Italy. Oh, a great answer. And what is one place that you haven't been to, but that you're dying to visit? I really want to go to Rio de Janeiro. Uh, my dad's a scientist. He's traveled to a lot of places. And he always mentioned that was his favorite city, but I've never been. What is one of your favorite books? I'd say The Great Gatsby. It's mm. the one book that I reread periodically, and mm. I just get something new out of it every time. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? 
So the superpower I would love, <laughs> and this is mostly from childhood, is just heat vision. I think that Ooh. would just be so much fun uh, to be able to walk around and sort of uh, start to inflame or agitate things. Uh, <laughs> and slightly more respectful than being able to actually see through walls. Just <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a little dodgy uh, when you get see-through vision. But heat vision, I think, is is morally acceptable. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, and if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would your last meal be? I have a favorite restaurant in the East Village here in New York uh, that I've been going to for 20 years and ordering the same thing. It's this rigatoni dish, bolognese, mm. and I'd probably want to have that. Beach or snow? Snow. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Sweet or savory? I don't think savory is a real flavor. I have to say <laughs> I think people talk, about, people talk about savory, and I don't think we know what it is. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not a big sweets fan, so I'll just leave it neutral. <laughs> Fair enough. And coffee or tea? Coffee. Those are all our speed round questions, so you have officially survived it. Thank you for indulging us in that. Um, and then part two of the podcast is really now, it's the deep dive, it's the meaty bit into grant making and innovation at the Rockefeller Foundation. Okay. So Zia, as Rockefeller's vice president of innovation, can you give us an overview of your primary responsibilities in this role? Sure, sure. Um, so I've been with the foundation for almost nine years now and uh, had a few different roles. And when our president, Dr. Raj Shah, joined uh, about a year and a half ago, he really wanted to focus and prioritize innovation. And that's what I'm spending my time on. And innovation at the Rockefeller Foundation really means two things. So one is in our major initiatives that we have in health and food and agriculture and economic opportunity, how do we make sure we're building innovation into each of those initiatives as they are packaging and designing up their solutions and how do we stay abreast of what are the cutting uh, edge innovations in each of those areas uh, so we can know um, and not have our blinders on what we, you know, were the solutions that we originally thought, particularly as we go five years down the road, six years down the road. So that's kind of one area. Uh, the second area is that there are these really compelling solutions that have emerged that have multiple applications to different problems. And our task is to figure out how to take advantage of these new developments and make sure we steer them towards social impact. So our work in innovative finance is a good example, uh, which is there's new compelling things like impact investing or new kinds of bonds. And how do we make sure that we take these financial innovations and steer them towards uh, the priorities that we have and where we could see the most impact. And more recently, we're really focusing on data and technology and all the advances in artificial intelligence and big data and digitization. And how do we both think about how organizations can use those tools, but also recognize that we're going to live in an increasingly digital future. And how do we help people, you know, all access opportunities and also mitigate the risks. That's so interesting. Um, so you mentioned the kind of impact investing and kind of innovative finance solutions, which is obviously a big focus at the foundation. So from your perspective, what would you say are the most appealing aspects of those innovative financial models like impact investing compared to the, a traditional kind of grant making? 
Sure. I'd, I'd say there's probably three main areas um, that I see a lot of benefit. So from our perspective, the first one is that we have the possibility of getting our money back, uh, which is always appealing uh, compared to a grant. Um, now, you know, there, there's some things that grant funding is always going to be more appropriate for when it comes to real fundamental research or sometimes some advocacy. Uh, but for, you know, a large number of an increasing number of areas, there are models. Uh, and so just the, the appeal, the basic appeal of getting our money back is great. Um, but more importantly, there's um, something when we make an investment where we are really supporting the core capacity of an organization. Uh, and that's different than supporting a project, uh, which is what most grants are organized around. So we're kind of helping invest and build in institutions. And because we're looking to get some money back, um, it steers those organizations to make sure that the products or services they're developing are actually needed by the world. And um, that's a little different than what happens with grant funding sometimes, where it can be a let's build it and hope that people will come. Uh, in Silicon Valley, you know, they use this term around product market fit. And that's such an important critical stage for startups to really experiment with do people need this? How do they need it? How are users using it? And how do we adapt and learn? And impact investing helps that, uh, which means means that whatever an organization does, it's more impactful, and hopefully the organization itself can be more sustainable because they're creating value for people. Uh, and then finally, I would say there's a certain discipline uh, that gets instilled when you have an investor-investee relationship where you're more focused on the outcomes and you're giving the organization more leeway on how to realize those outcomes. I think sometimes with grants, the outcomes can be a little vague, so people start to focus more on managing or trying to control the activity. Mm, that's so interesting because I think that one of the conversations we have quite often with funders is um, this idea of kind of grantees trying to kind of fit themselves into a hole that they don't fit in, but to kind of get get a grant. And I think an kind of an investment style way of giving um, really kind of opens up that relationship in a way that, uh, you know, it is less about some of the, the limitations that you've just described, but also the distinction between direct versus overhead costs. And those kind of conversations are really um, open up a lot of opportunities for, for the way to, to manage uh, nonprofit relationships in that way. Would you have any advice um, for non Nonprofits who are currently kind of delving into that world. So maybe they're thinking about taking that approach uh, with your foundation or, or a comparable one and exploring their options with those kind of innovative finance mechanisms. Um, you know, that's a great question. I think I'd probably have two suggestions uh, for a nonprofit uh, or a social enterprise that was thinking about this. Um, the first suggestion would be to learn from others in their relevant field who have tried it and to understand um, you know, what's worked for them, what's been challenging, and is it really relevant for them. The second would be to find an investor who's going to partner with them uh, and help and support them, as opposed to just being an arm's length investor. And uh, in Silicon Valley, they, they refer a lot to what's called dumb money uh, from VCs, which are you know, a VC who makes an investment, but in managing that investment actually isn't helping the organization or in some cases create some harm. Uh, but there are a lot of um, foundations who are interested in the space and have some experience and an increasing number of family offices and impact investors. But to find someone who's going to be a good coach and guide uh, and forge a real partnership, I think that's pretty critical. 
And do you do that with current Rockefeller grantees? Um, so grantees receiving philanthropic investment. Do you, do you work with them to help them explore those kind of financial models, either with you or with other potential investors? Is that something that you act, take proactive approach to, or are you mostly led by the approach of the organization when they come to you? Um, I would say we take... Um Probably a bit of a range, but if I had to pick a stance, we're probably fairly active um, because uh, for two reasons. One, we want the enterprise and the organization to succeed. Um, so, for example, we just invested in a startup in Silicon Valley uh, that is a group of scientists at Stanford who developed some really interesting science around using satellite imagery and machine learning to give very detailed maps that predict uh poverty levels and crop yields in Africa. Um, and so we're partnering with them pretty closely, helping them think about who are users that they could try alpha versions and beta versions with, helping tap our networks to find a CEO. Uh, so I feel like we're being supportive and we're working pretty closely with them. So one reason is that we want the organization enterprise uh, to work. Uh, the second is really we're trying to change entire systems of which an organization will be part of that. So in the example that I just gave, we certainly want this enterprise to succeed. But what we're really trying to do is revolutionize and change how big organizations use machine learning and big data to have more impact and effectiveness and how they can draw on the kinds of startups we fund to provide them services. So we're working a little bit at that market and ecosystem level as well. What would you say are the most common trends that you're seeing in this innovation space, both from the foundations and philanthropists that are comparable to Rockefeller and also from other grantee and nonprofit partners? So I think one trend uh, that we're seeing, which is quite interesting, is just the ticket sizes are getting much bigger. And I think that's allowing for more late stage investments. So, uh, you know, one area that I know is challenging the early days of impact investments was that it seemed that there are a number of actors um, who were interested in making you know five hundred thousand dollar or one million dollar investments, but to make those twenty or thirty million dollar investments felt more challenging, uh, and so these enterprises would scale, but then would hit a little bit of a limit. So I think we're starting to see um, some big funds being raised, and for these big funds to be able to deploy effectively, they have to make pretty sizable investments, which is great news for organizations that are trying to continue to scale. So that's. Um, that's one trend that we see. And then another trend that we see, and this is more general rather than specific to impact investment, is I think there's just more collaboration happening uh, in terms of uh, different actors coming together to put together funds and pool their resources. And it's a good way to drive collaboration between foundations um, and uh, who have similar forms of capital, but also when I think about how a foundation can collaborate with a private sector bank, if we can take more of the risk and put in more of the concessionary um, terms and returns, that can mobilize more capital from the private sector. So we get these blended finance structures. Those are two areas that I think are kind of new compared to where we were five uh, or six years ago. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear. Uh, going off of that as well, are there any common mistakes that you are noticing nonprofits making in that innovation space, and that could be both financial innovation, but also innovation in, in a wider context like you um, first described? Well, um, 
You know, I think the mistakes, uh, and maybe I'll, I'll talk about this at two levels. You know, one might be uh, pitching or proposing work, and then another might be executing. Um, I think one mistake in pitching or proposing work, if you're going to call it uh, and frame it as being truly innovative, is to not also pay attention or articulate all the things that can go wrong. And I feel sometimes when people come to visit foundations or funders, they feel that they need to have all the answers and be completely buttoned up. Um, and, you know, if someone can't point to the two, three things that are very legitimate and could easily go wrong, it feels if they're not doing that, it feels one, it may actually not be that innovative because it doesn't feel that risky and the two go hand in hand. And secondly, it makes you wonder, um, are they going to be candid uh, around when things don't go wrong and are they going to be able to pivot? Uh, because inevitably, anything that you try and do that's really innovative is going to morph, adapt, and change in the course of the project pretty quickly. So I think that's kind of like one category of mistakes I describe at the upfront end. And then in the execution related to what I just talked about is as soon as things go wrong, it's very important to quickly surface and get all the brains you can, um, whether they exist in your funding partner or elsewhere to try and solve and pivot. And, um, you know, it's important that the funder give real confidence when they give a grant that's really framed as innovation, that they're willing to do this, they understand this happens, and they will help along the way. Uh, but also people need to draw on it and not feel that they're getting judged or will get criticized for not delivering, but it's just all part of the learning and innovation process. I think that's such a consistent response from every type of donor or investor that we've spoken to um, about, you know, the... Uh, being honest about where the challenges exist. And I think it's especially when it comes to entrepreneur philanthropists or people who do have an impact investing mindset, knowing that actually to create big change, you need to take risk and and know that failure is a part of that at, at some times. And I think that's such a consistent message that's come through this podcast so far, far from donors uh, wanting to kind of know where the challenges are and also know when things go wrong. Um, so I'm glad that you've also, uh, also said that. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's super fascinating. So moving on um, into the relationships that you do have with grantees. So like most established foundations, Rockefeller actively solicits funding applications rather than having an open portal. So once the foundation has set a strategic cause area to fund in, what's your process of selecting organizations or projects to fund within that? That is a great question. Um, and uh, I'm not sure I would characterize what we have as a process uh, as much as uh, perhaps a, a pattern of behaviors uh, that we might have. Um, so the first thing I'll say is there's often a lot more dialogue between a community of thinkers uh, and partners and potential implementing partners and foundation staff in setting those priorities. Uh, it's, it's not often the case that we kind of sit behind closed doors um, and just work with strategy consultants and figure out what we're going to do because eventually we're going to have to partner with people who, who do it uh, and we'll have to learn from them. That's always a little bit of a tricky process because everyone is waiting to see where the foundation may go and people may overly react or reframe their work if they're guessing that the foundation is going in one direction or not. Um, and so often when you have these conversations, it's, it's with people that you've 
probably worked with before and have a trusted relationship and can count on to tell you that, look, that's just not a good way to go uh, for you guys. So there's something about having those conversations where you need to manage the um, kind of perceived conflict of interest that a grantee might have in suggesting something, but you certainly want to benefit from their experience and wisdom. So that's kind of like one phase, I would say, uh, which is there's a little bit more of a two-way conversation with a kind of trusted community uh, of partners and voices uh, on deciding where to go. Um, then when that decision is made, it's usually made with a few partners in mind already of who could help execute uh, and start to deliver and drive uh, that work. And that usually emerges from the phase I just mentioned. Um, and then there's a mix between knowing what we want to do. You'll have program officers go to conferences or learn about other partners um, and take a proactive stance to search out others who might be um, uh, working in this area or have innovative ideas. And then eventually people start to find you uh, once you've known to be working in this space and you've made some commitments and people are learning about that work. And, you know, people will refer um, uh, folks to us or we might get some just inbound emails or calls. So it's a little bit more open than it may seem. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's definitely very common to what have a lot of our other guests have said. And to follow up from that, so of course you're saying that that a lot of the momentum comes from Rockefeller being proactive in identifying partners to engage with and organizations um, to partner with. So, but of course, there's momentum on both sides, right? So fundraisers and organizations can do things to make sure that they're in the line of sight for funders like Rockefeller going out and, and doing scoping around different areas. So do you have any advice to fundraisers or organizations who are trying to figure out how to get on, on your radar and, and how relationship building can help um, expedite that process on their end? Yeah, I think the advice I would have, and I, I'm very empathetic to that, having uh, been in the management consulting process process uh, on the other side where you'd be talking to clients often. Um, I often describe it uh, as different activities along a continuum. So if you think of 0% as being the very first meeting and 100% as being when you're signing on the dotted line for a grant, I think it's worth spending time talking to a wide range of funders and foundations to get them from zero to 25 or 30% of awareness. Uh, being sure that you understand what their strategies are, if you um, objectively believe that the work you do could fit or support or be adapted to those strategies to explore those opportunities, and make sure there's a certain uh, critical threshold of mutual awareness on both parties' parts of what each could do and what each other's resources are. From the 30 to 60%, you know, I think that's just a lot of internal decisions making and alignment that happens. And this is where I see some uh, potential grantees or partners either getting caught up and spending too much time or thinking they can have a lot of influence on the decision-making process uh, where they're not. Uh, but that is a zone where I'd probably recommend that um, 
potential grantees or partners spend less time. And then once you've picked up to the 75 or 80 percent, when it's clear that the funder wants to move forward on something, that is when I think it's all hands on deck. uh, And to just get a proposal and work with them. Uh, And candidly, I've been surprised sometimes when we feel like we're really ready to go and we have some internal deadlines that we don't uh, make as much progress with our partners as quickly as we can. So that's that's just some uh, uh, advice I have in terms of thinking of this as a life cycle. It's really useful to hear that internal context because I know that that middle that middle section where you, you feel that people maybe should be doing slightly less is, is certainly the area where it feels like it maybe goes quiet uh, on the fundraising yeah. side. Uh, yeah, so it's, exactly. good, it's good, to, good to hear kind of internal advice on, on what actually is happening during that period and, and, and where it's maybe good to take your foot off the pedal and wait for internal processes to make a bit more sense. Um, I have a question, a follow-up question on that, which is in that kind of those early few dozen percent where it's kind of uh, getting to know each other and, and what you're priorities are and where there might be alignment. Obviously, as a, as a large foundation, you have a lot of people um, who might want to be having those conversations with you and reaching out for those kind of mutual explorations. Um, what kind of, what are the successful conversations you've had in that context? What are they like? What is it? Is it meeting informally? Is it reaching out for a specific discussion? Is it kind of sharing kind of information on each other's stuff uh, on paper and kind of reading? What, what, what works best and what has looked best for you uh, on your side of the table? Sure, sure. I, I would say that the uh, first introductory meetings that I have that are most helpful to us follow um, a pretty usual pattern, actually, which is um, first uh, understanding what it is that the organization does in, in a pretty concrete way. Uh, and that would mean both uh, what are the outcomes or what is the impact that the organization is trying to achieve and how are they doing it in a unique or differentiated way. Um, And it also helps just understand the overall values and mission of the organization as well. That usually doesn't take more than 10 minutes. Uh, It can sometimes take 59 minutes in a 60-minute meeting, uh, but it usually takes or should take about 10 minutes. Um, Then I think it's really uh, helpful for once the funder has that context, they can explain what it is uh, that they do that's relevant, at least to the organization or where the areas of interest are uh, that are relevant. Me, for me personally, I then like just a period of brainstorming together around, you know, what are opportunities um, that you could work together. The caveat here is um, something that funders can be very cautious about is expressing enthusiasm or interest, uh, because that can send the wrong signal, and uh, people can walk away from the meeting thinking they heard a lot of interest and enthusiasm when it might have been just thinking out loud. So that is a condition. Condition I try and establish up front, which is, you know, I just want to, you know, be thinking out loud and be transparent in the thinking without conveying, um, you know, more interest or sending the wrong signals or having some unintended inferences coming out of that conversation. But if you can have that brainstorming and if it feels safe and if a funder feels safe sharing their ideas, and also it's great to hear a grantier partner saying, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, and that's that's actually something I really look for in a meeting is someone, because 
because I know I don't have great ideas when I'm brainstorming all the time. But if you can have confidence that a grantier partner will push back on you and say, like, well, actually, I don't think that'll work or that's not a good idea or here we tried this, but it didn't work before. That really boosts the level of confidence that you can have a candid and trusting relationship uh, going forward. And then in the last bit of the meeting, it's great to just, you know, categorize what next steps should be. And I think that is one, it feels like a really mutually beneficial and timely opportunity and then really planning out when the next meeting should be. Uh, the second category would be like, this could be interesting to either of us. So let's check in again in three or four months and we may have shifted or you may have shifted uh, in a way that makes alignment higher. Or, and this is the hardest one, it could be like, I, we just don't really feel like it's likely that this will be uh, an opportunity, but thanks very much for stopping by. That's a really hard one to share because it's so easy to kick the can down the road, but I feel like it's pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, it's so much about trust and, and kind of careful careful building of expectations and um, kind of careful dance around each other's needs and interests. It's uh, it's good to hear yeah. your perspective on, on how careful you have to be in that situation as well. Um, so jumping further on uh, down the line in a relationship with a grantee, impact measurement is really often spoken about in an innovation context. Nonprofits try and communicate their work in a way that's kind of fresh and incentivizing for donors, often using kind of innovative digital means. Um, can you think of any best practice examples of impact measurement innovation that you've seen at Rockefeller or in the wider sector? You know, impact measurement uh, is an interesting um uh, is an interesting topic when it comes particularly to innovation. Um, so in general, I find impact metrics hugely helpful if you're really trying to implement something and the concept is more or less known and focusing more on the impact measurements versus the activities gives the grantee or the partner who has the knowledge on the ground to adapt and do what they need to do. And it makes life a lot easier for the funder uh, as well. So I'm a big fan of impact metrics. In innovation, though, it's... Um, Impact metrics are important, but what can be almost more important are the learning questions, uh, where we explicitly accept that we're not trying to necessarily optimize for impact right now, but we're trying to learn and figure out what concept is going to work best or what approach is going to work best. So it's useful to have the impact metrics in mind, but to be even more explicit around the hypotheses you're trying to test and what are the metrics that'll help you learn uh, versus the metrics that help you realize whether you're having impact. So that would be my only uh, caveat to your question around uh, the impact metrics when it comes to innovation. Sure. Could you describe your dream fundraiser or your dream grantee organization? What makes them so excellent? And they can be fictional or real life. <laughs> well, I will stick with fictional uh, <laughs> just in case. Any, not that, not to mean that there aren't the, uh, those ones out there, but I, I don't think it would be helpful to actually use real examples. Um, so I think um, one of the first things you look at is just really the leader of the organization. And is she, you know, really passionate and visionary and will she be able to articulate a narrative that's larger than what the organization is doing but leads to the bigger paradigm shift or movement that we're trying to drive and could they be a real ambassador for that 
But on the flip side, either they or they or, or she has a trusted right hand who can execute and run the organization and has their hands on the financials um, and how to draw capacity together. So there's there's one aspect of what does that leadership team look like? You know, is it it's hard to find that all in one person, but at least in the top two or the top team, do you have real confidence around being able to think larger and message larger than the actual work that they're doing? but making sure that they're operationally very competent. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is clarity of mission and strategy. Um, It's really helpful to hear about a grantee who has turned down grants or turned down fundraising because it just doesn't fit either their core competencies or what they have chosen to stick to. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard discipline. Um, But sometimes I understand and I have empathy for it. Organizations just have to, you know, take the money wherever they can get it. Um, But what you hope is that there's an organization that's good enough that they can make those choices, say no, and have the confidence that they can raise funds that are more fit to purpose. So that would be a second element. Uh, The third element is you just want to test for values alignment um, that you have with your team and their team. Uh, You know, often the grantees that we work most closely with, there's multiple relationships between some of our more junior staff, some of our senior staff, say our communications department, and just to make sure there's a certain values around collaboration and responsiveness and brainstorming. And, you know, increasingly I think about having fun as well. Uh, And is there just a comfortable uh, way that we're going to work together? Um, And then lastly, you know, and this comes down to just the uh, proposal and the, uh, that comes through, you can often tell if a proposal is pretty clear and structured around clarity of the problem, uh, being distinctive around what the approach is, you know, being clear around how we'll know whether we're having success or not, real candor in describing the risks, you can often assess from the proposal uh, that that's a reflection of the thinking uh, in the organization. Um, So to make sure that on the actual work itself, that they are, um, you know, really clear, uh, really credible and are open eyed around the issues and challenges. So those would be the kinds of things uh, that would create an ideal partnership. Yeah, it sounds pretty dreamy. And and I think something really interesting that you said is about having that values alignment and collaboration at all levels of seniority between the two organizations. And I think that's something we certainly always encourage organizations to do, which is to cultivate and grow relationships, not just with this, you know, the senior exec, but to take that holistic approach to the partnership because it's important. And, you know, organizations are just made of people and everyone needs to have a bit of fun, as you said. So once, you know, with this dream grantee, once a grant has been committed and a partnership officially started, what are the most common mistakes you see organizations making that turn you off from committing additional support down the line? Uh, let's see. That's a very good question. So aside from kind of like the standard um the project's not work. Well, I even shouldn't say the project's not working. There's a good way to fail in a project, um, which is candor, raising issues, real earnest efforts um, to fix things or make things happen. Uh, but often there's just circumstances that are beyond anyone's control. Um, and you want to just see that people did the right thing, um, even if it was failing to meet the original goals. Um, and that's okay. We all, you know, it's never a good thing. Uh, it's a but it's a risk that we take in our work, and we realize that not everything we do is going to pan out. Um, so that itself is not not so much of a problem. 
But if there are real execution uh, challenges where there are things that were in the organization's control but they weren't able to execute, um, if we sense that you know the senior team was all in at the front end during the quote-unquote sale process but then we never hear from them because they're off raising the next round of money um, – if there's anything that feels like uh, we're not being real candid uh, in the exchange of information or hearing from them, and um, at the end of the project, if we feel that there isn't real candor in assessing what really happened and there's a really aggressive pitching uh, for the next round without us getting comfortable with that, those are all sort of warning signs of that this may not be the ideal partner to continue working with. Absolutely. Okay, so we're reaching the end now. So my final question for you is, uh, what's the one thing that you would like listeners to take away from this conversation? The one thing that I took away from this conversation, um, you know, it, it is about being much more conscious of what the experience is like uh, in the grantee shoes when they're approaching funders. I like to think that I keep that in mind, but as we've been having this conversation, you've been asking me really good questions. Uh, it's made me realize and made me become aware that I have all these thoughts in my head, but I not, may not have them really in front of my consciousness when I'm having back-to-back -back meetings all day. So I would hope that, um, you know, I will try to do this and I hope every funder would just think about these are the three or four things I want to remind myself when I meet with a potential partner or a grantee and just be present in a different way in those meetings. Mm -hmm. It's almost like somebody should start a podcast to help grantees understand what's going on in donors' minds. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an excellent idea. I know. My goodness. <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's so awesome. We cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show and share your incredible insight. Your answers have been truly, truly unbelievable. And I know they'll be helpful for so many listeners. Well, thank you for such a thoughtful set of questions. It really provoked my thinking and I hope it's useful in some way. Oh, good. Oh, no, it's, it's really our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Zia for his generous time and advice. Yes, thank you, Zia. If you want to learn more about IG or if you have any questions you'd like to ask our future guests, we'd love to hear from you. We love it when you reach out with feedback and suggestions. You can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is IG underscore advisors. Or you can always reach out and we'd love to treat you to a coffee or a tea in London. Our episode with Rockefeller actually marks the 10th episode of the show. And it's amazing. We now have almost 10,000 listeners in just under 30 countries, which is so wild. So to all the listeners out there, thank you for supporting us and getting in touch. We really, truly love it. We're now deep into the planning of the next 10 and have some very exciting interviews in the pipeline for the new year, so stay tuned. Plus, the official branded What Donors Want coffee slash tea mugs will officially be a thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. See you soon.